0: From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory & Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck. There is a big difference between progressive Christianity and conservative Christianity. And we're going to explore that difference today. My guest is Marcus J. Borg. He is the author of over 21 books. Many have been about the historical Jesus. Some have been about God, the Bible, the New Testament, the heart of Christianity, and reclaiming Christian language. I probably have at least a dozen of them on my own bookshelf. Uh, he taught at Oregon State University for 28 years, where he held the Hundere Chair of Religion and Culture at the time of his retirement in 2007. He has also been canon theologian at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Borg has been a guest previously on Religion for Life, speaking about his book, Speaking Christian, and a book on the New Testament in the order the books were written. Uh, Today we talk about his latest book, Convictions, How I Learned What Matters Most, and he's with me on the telephone from his home near Bend, Oregon. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Borg, back to Religion for Life.
1: Very nice to be with you again.
0: This book uh, was occasioned by your seventieth birthday. A happy birthday! Um, but but it's more than a, a reflection on your life. It's also about uh, how the the subtitle, how it says, "How I learned what matters most," um, and and as I read it, it's as though it's it's a sermon to Christians and Christians who are Americans to 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 find out our real conviction of Christianity and to live that out. Is is am I reading that right?
1: Uh, you are, and. Uh it uh, is a little bit of a memoir, not a biography. Uh, and my life as biography is not all that interesting, except insofar as all lives are interesting, of course. And as I um, worked on that sermon that I preached on my 70th birthday that gave birth to the book, I came up with a triad, uh, a set of three terms that ended up shaping the book, and those three terms are memories, conversions, by which I mean major changes in how we see things, and then convictions, more or less settled ways of seeing things that are not easily shaken. And it occurred to me, as I thought about those three terms, that they're potentially very useful terms for anybody of a certain age to use to think about their life, to try to get in touch with uh, their early memories about how they saw things. Um, If they grew up Christian, what they thought Christianity was about, if um, there were political views talked about in their home that they knew their parents had, what those were and more broadly, what they thought life was about. And then, moving beyond those early memories, to think about, have there been significant changes in how I see things? Again, whether about religion or Christianity or about politics or just what I think life is about. And if there have been, what led to those changes? And then finally, to reflect upon, are there... Settled ways of seeing that have become foundational for me. Um, And that is, of course, what I mean by convictions. And so I think that set of terms is useful for exploring our own life journeys. And throughout the book, pretty much in every chapter, I use that trio or triad of terms to talk about what I learned about the death of Jesus growing up. That's an example how that changed because of my scholarship, yes, but also because of my life experience and what I think the cross is about now. So uh, that triad, which came to me, as I just said, uh, around my 70th birthday, um, shapes the book
0: you write uh, about the division uh, within American Christianity, and you write in Ameri- that you suggest five categories of Christians, uh, conservative, conventional, uncertain, former, and progressive. And, and of these, uh, the divide seems to be between conservative and progressive. Um, can you give kind of a, a, a little nutshell of what the differences between those two approaches are?
1: Yeah, the differences are both Theological and, to some extent, political. Um, Theologically, conservative Christians um, almost unanimously believe in the inerrancy or infallibility of the Bible. Um, They also believe that the central question of the Christian life is where we will spend eternity and and hence issues of heaven and hell. Uh, They emphasize that the central issue in our life with God is our disobedience and sinfulness, and thus our great need is forgiveness. And uh, that's where Jesus comes in, of course, within that framework. Jesus died to pay for our sins, so the payment understanding of Jesus' death is central to conservative Christianity. And finally, most conservative Christians emphasize that Jesus... And therefore, Christianity is the only way of salvation. And progressive Christians, on the other hand, um, and I'm one of them, we perhaps are better known for what we don't believe, because uh, our statement of what we believe or what we think would begin by negating all of the five points that I just mentioned. And... What we affirm instead is that the Bible is utterly central, foundational to Christian identity and life, but it's not inerrant or infallible. It's the product of our spiritual ancestors in the ancient communities of um, biblical Israel and New Testament Christianity. And as such, it contains their wisdom, their insight their convictions, their passions, and sometimes their limited vision and misunderstandings. So, recognizing that the Bible is treasure in earthen vessels, to use a phrase from St. Paul, it also recognizes that sometimes the Bible is wrong. And I think it's vitally important for Christians to be able to say that, Otherwise, we get into uh, these conundrums where if the Bible says something, that settles it. And of course, that's not really true, even though there are millions of Christians who think that um, that does settle it. But there are all kinds of passages in the Bible that even conservative Christians do not take seriously. And um salvation for progressive Christians is not really about heaven or hell. It's about transformation, uh, transformation this side of death, both personal transformation and the transformation of this world, meaning the humanly created world of society. And um, progressive Christians also recognize that the payment understanding of Jesus' death Is um, not New Testament or ancient Christianity. It's um, just under a thousand years old, so it's not part of the first thousand years of Christianity. And instead, the death of Jesus has two primary meanings. Uh, One is that it's an archetypal metaphor or symbol of personal transformation, of Dying and rising as a metaphor of radical personal transformation. That's what it is for Paul. And its second meaning is, for want of a better word, political. Uh, it begins with the recognition that Jesus didn't just die, but rather he was killed, he was executed, executed by the religious and political authorities who ruled his world. And thus, the cross is their no to Jesus and his passion for the kingdom of God. And then Easter becomes God's yes to Jesus and his passion for the transformation of this world. And then um, there are other differences, too. Um, Briefly, um, most conservative Christians are politically conservative. Uh, The demographic group, for example, providing the highest percentage of support to initiating the war against Iraq some uh, 11 years ago now, were white evangelicals, 84%. And that same demographic group, white evangelicals, have tended to vote about 80% for the Republican candidate in the presidential elections of this century. And progressive Christians, on the other hand, see the political issues very differently. They're not about abortion, they're not about gay marriage, they're not about uh, American military superiority, Uh, but rather they are the issues of um, economic fairness, of uh, uh, everybody should have access to medical care and so forth what are classically called, I suppose, the liberal political issues. But for progressive Christians, those political passions are grounded in the way we see the Bible, that the Bible from beginning to end is pervasively political. Now, of course, it's religious. It's about God, but it's about God's passion that people be liberated from political and economic oppression. Think of the Exodus story, the most important story for ancient Israel. And uh, Jesus is about the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God. That's um, the advanced summary of his message as we find it in the first gospel to be written, the gospel of Mark, the coming of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is about a world of justice, and nonviolence here below. It's for the earth. And no Christian should be surprised by that. It's right there in the Lord's Prayer, of course. Your kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. So that politically, the Bible is about the transformation of this world from a world ruled by exploitative domination systems, to a world that is grounded in God's passion for economic justice and nonviolence, and of course, ultimately, that means peace. So, the division is pretty stark, both theologically and politically. It's almost as if there are two different religions, both using the same scriptures and the same language but their purposes are very, very different.
0: If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Marcus J. Borg, uh, author of Convictions, How I Learned What Matters Most, and he just provided uh, for us a succinct uh, uh, difference between conservative and progressive uh, Christianity. In fact, you wrote uh, in your book that you were a, a member of the Young Republicans when you were in college, and then you read... The Book of Amos, and later on in your book, you encourage all of us to study Amos. What is it about Amos that is true?
1: Well, um, it is true that I uh, grew up Republican, and I don't want to turn this into narrowly partisan uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, I came from a family of Republicans—14 blood aunts and uncles, 41 first cousins. And we were all Republicans. And uh, the one exception that I mentioned briefly in the book was a great aunt named Mary. She was a socialist and lived alone in a rented room, which is what we thought happened to people whose political beliefs were wrong. And um, anyway, um, to begin with where your question began, By my sophomore year in college, I was president of the Young Republican Club. I uh, was an advocate for Richard Nixon in the election of 1960 against JFK. And uh, and then in one of my classes, happened to be a political philosophy class, the professor included in the syllabus a week on the Book of Amos in the Old Testament. We... um, Read the book, it's not all that long, nine chapters, and I had had no idea that there was anything like that in the Bible. I was struck by the passion in Amos for the well being of the poor, not just through the wealthy increasing their charitable giving, justice and charity are quite different, but Amos is full of scathing indictments of the very wealthy at the top of the social hierarchy of the ancient world of Israel, of the lavishness of their lifestyles while 80% or more of the population languished in poverty. And so the whole book is an indictment of economic oppression and of the way. The wealthy and powerful typically use their wealth and power to structure the society in their own narrow self-interest and to do so in the name of God, because Amos indicts not only their economic and political policy, but also the way they use religion, and this is the religion of worshiping uh, the God of Israel, not a pagan god the way they use their religion to legitimate the way they put the world together, that um, the social order reflects the will of God. We didn't set it up this way, um, but this is grounded in um, God's will for the world and so forth. And in the course of that week, I went from being president of the Young Republican Club to saying in a guest editorial in my college newspaper, the only legitimate Christian political position is democratic socialism. <laughs> now, I probably wouldn't put it that bluntly or blatantly today, but that's how dramatic that conversion was. And so in my book, I, I mentioned that there are three major kinds of conversions I've gone through in my lifetime. Intellectual, political, and religious, and that was my political conversion.
0: And your intellectual conversion, um, I want to ask you about that too. You, you write uh, that uh, that your intellectual conversion led you to pursue a professional career in religion, and and I related to that uh, because I entered the ministry and religion uh, because I thought it would be the place to address the most important questions. Um, but lately religion seems to have had a bad reputation uh, as either irrelevant or even harmful, and uh, its critics would say that the most important questions are certainly not in religion, but in politics or science or something else. Would you say now, after a career in religion, that religion is still a place to ask the most important questions?
1: Yes, and I, at the same time, would say that religion has been discredited in the minds of many people. And some of that is, of course, because of extremism in um, um, other religions than Christianity. But I think in the United States, the major reason that religion and Christianity in particular has been discredited in the eyes of so many people is because of the most visible face of Christianity in this country, and the most visible face is, of course, um, what I am calling conservative Christianity. Conservative Christianity dominates Christian radio, dominates Christian television. They're highly visible in um, political campaigns, um, the Christian right, and so forth, and so in many ways, Christianity has gotten a bad rap because of its most, uh, yeah, because of its um, most vocal advocates. And yet, I think that religions in general and Christianity in particular continue to deal with the really big questions, and they're probably the questions that led you into ministry. Questions like, what is real, and What are we as human beings like? And given our answer to the question, what is real? How then should we live? I mean, these are questions that um, I don't know that they are the subject matter of any other discipline. Perhaps philosophy would be closest, but, um, you know, a good part of 20th century philosophy has kind of set those questions aside in favor of questions about the nature of language and so forth. So yes, what led me intellectually into the study of religion, the um, awareness that, oh my God, these are enormously important questions, um, that's still true for me.
0: My guest on Religion for Life is Marcus J. Borg, author of his latest book called Convictions, How I Learned what matters most. And, you know, uh, one of the differences between conservative and progressive Christians might be an understanding of God With if the conservatives would still rely on a supernatural theism of some sort. But with progressives and myself, I'm not sure exactly how I even talk about God. Sometimes I, I uh, tell my congregation that I don't really know much of what to say about God, but I do have a heart for Jesus. Uh, his courage, his vision, his commitment to nonviolence, his passion uh, for what he called the kingdom of God gives me a, a glimpse of, of what's important. How do you, uh, can you give us just a, a brief th- a brief statement about God?
1: I'll... Sure. For many people, the word God refers to a supreme being a person-like being who is separate from the universe, who created the universe as something separate from God's self a long time ago, and who relates to the universe now through interventions. And in shorthand, that's what you refer to as supernatural theism. And that's certainly the God that I grew up with. And I began to have doubts about the existence of that God in my teenage years. I don't think I acknowledged them to anybody. And by my early 20s, I probably was a closet agnostic because that way of thinking about God simply made no sense to me. The more I learned about the universe, uh, the more I learned about the history of human undeserved misery and so forth and so I basically stopped believing in that God but I had nothing to put in its place Mm -hmm. and then what I call my religious conversion which by the way was not from one religion to another but it was a conversion within Christianity involved experiencing I'm going to say experiencing God, experiencing the sacred. And these were, I now know to call them this, these were moments of mystical experience in which I experienced God or the sacred as being all around me and in everything. Everything, the experiences were experiences of a radiance or luminosity that seemed to be in everything, lighting up everything, and the ordinary separation that I would experience between myself and the world, myself and what I was seeing, momentarily disappeared and I was far more aware of my connectedness with everything. And that transformed my understanding of the word God. I began to understand what passages in the Bible, like Acts 17:28, mean. These are words attributed to Paul. Um, Paul refers to God as the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Where is God in relationship to us and the universe? Not somewhere beyond the universe, separate from the universe. But we and everything that is are in God. And this, of course, we also learned as children growing up. We were taught that God is everywhere, that God is omnipresent. But I never really got what that meant. Until in my early 30s, I had this series of mystical experiences in which I saw that, experienced that, so that it was no longer about believing in a reality who may or may not exist, but I had a strong sense of knowing that that's the way things are, that, um, Everything is in God. Now, a quick qualifying remark. That doesn't mean that everything that happens is God's will. I don't think that for a moment. But that everything that happens happens in God. And so um, you find the same thing in that magnificent psalm, the 139th psalm, which has that Marvelous rhetorical question. Whither shall I flee from your presence? And then the psalmist answers that question. If I uh, ascend to the highest heaven, behold, you are there. If I descend to the innermost parts of the earth, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell at the furthermost corners of the sea, behold, you are there. Well, how is that possible? It's possible because the psalmist is imagining that wherever we go, wherever we are, we are in God. There is nowhere we can be and be outside of God. And of course, most of the time, we're not aware of that. But there are, uh, for some people, these blessed moments in which we experience that, and so um, the semi-technical term for this way of thinking about God has um, its roots in the Greek language. It's the word in English is "an en theism." "An" means everything. "En" Greek preposition means "in." And, of course, theism comes from the Greek word for God, theos. So panentheism means everything is in God. God is not a being somewhere else who may or may not exist, but a reality who is sometimes known.
0: My guest on Religion for Life is Marcus Borg, author of Convictions, How I Learned What Matters Most, a Memoir and More. Uh, a sermon, really, about about helping us all find what matters most by reflecting on his own memories, conversions, and convictions. An important book. I recommend it highly, and I thank you again, uh, Dr. Borg, for spending time with me on Religion for Life.
1: I always enjoy talking to you, John, so thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Schuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is FPC Elizabeth. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Virginia. Be well.